0: Thanks, Sarah. It's quite a weighty passage of Scripture, that, isn't it? It's probably one of the most conveniently ignored (laughs) passages of Scripture that there are in Scripture, because it is so very demanding. Today, we'll journey further, still on the way of the cross, walking with Jesus on a journey that steadily builds to that moment in history where he gave his life for us all. And what will we learn on this section of the journey? Well, of course, that depends on how we respond to the questions Jesus asks us on the way. I think it'd be a good idea to keep your Bible open. I want you to occasionally look into it. page 1012, I think, probably. Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 27. Mark 28, sorry, Mark 8, verses 27 onwards. Now, back in 2001, during... What was quite a difficult time uh, for Kate and myself, we went to a large conference in Blackpool. Why we did that, you may be asking. (laughs) Why Blackpool? Well, I was leading the morning worship at this conference every morning. And if we'd have hoped for space and quiet and time to think and reflect, then I can promise you we were sorely disappointed. Blackpool isn't the place for that sort of thing. I'm sure it's good for other things that we won't go into here, but not peace and quiet. Instead, we got hustle and bustle, stag do's, hen parties, noise that kept us awake all night, litter, crowds, and four days of non-stop rain. I kid you not. It was grim. (laughs) We couldn't even get onto the beach to have a moment to get some perspective. It was that sort of time. Jesus knew that to get perspective, to think things through properly, you need space. And that's why he takes his disciples off to Caesarea Philippi in today's section of Mark's story. We heard it read. Now Caesarea Philippi is the most northerly point of Jesus' journeys. Interestingly, it's in a remote non-Jewish area in the foothills of the Mount Hermon range. You can see it there. Jesus takes his disciples, not to the town particularly, but into the countryside. He needs space and quiet, as I said, not hustle and bustle. The whole focus of this part of the story is on Jesus spending quality time with his disciples, alone, away from the crowds, the distractions, the demands. Because it's only in a position like that, in a situation like that, where it could really grapple with these weighty issues without the distractions and the demands. Jesus hadn't come here for public ministry, especially. He'd come for private teaching. And like any good teacher, he begins with questions. Now, look in verse 27. It's quite a striking thing that comes at the end of that verse. Oh no, sorry. It's before that. That's it, in the middle of that verse. Jesus said, uh, Mark tells us that uh, Jesus did this. On the way, he asked them. On the way, he asked them. It's a really striking verse. Often in church life, we tend to focus on the truths that Jesus gave us, all the instructions, and rightly so, because they fuel our Christian life on a daily basis. But we so often forget that Jesus asks his disciples questions on the way. He wants to know our thoughts and chat them through with us as we walk with him. He wants to get a better idea of where we're at in our faith, our thinking, our personal situations. He's interested in our thinking on what's going on. What's going on? So what are the questions that Jesus is asking you and me at the moment as we journey with him? on the way what are the challenges you're trying to grapple with or work through with your faith at the moment you know these issues raise questions and Jesus is in the questions often he's asking them is it how you reflect your love for god in your place of work with your work colleagues or perhaps it relates to a struggle you're facing at the moment and you want to see god at work in a really difficult dark and painful situation that you're up against. Or maybe you're wondering how you can encourage people in your family who don't have a living faith in Jesus. Whatever the situation is, there can be as as many situations there are people in this room. But whatever the situation, invariably, Jesus is asking us questions about them on the way. Because that's what he does with his disciples. Just as we see him do in Mark's story. Asking his friends questions relating to an issue that they're up against. So I'll ask again. What are the questions Jesus is asking us at the moment on the way? And what questions is he asking us as a church community at the moment? On the way as we journey with him. You know, being aware of these questions and engaging with these questions over the next months will form an important part of our evaluation process that we're going to go through as a church between May the 1st and July the 17th this year. I've mentioned it a few times already. If you are a member of the PCC or in a leadership role, then you're well aware of this, but quite a number of people don't necessarily know all the details. And I want us all to have a clear idea about what's going to go on. During this time, As I say, as we journey together still as a church and we grapple with these questions that we have, these burning issues, we need to address them. And just as in Mark's story, it will be important that we do this as a community. Jesus didn't send the disciples off and say, go and think about this on your own and then come back with a a few ideas for me. He asked them as a community, as a group together. And it will be important that we do that. And so on May the 8th and the 15th, we'll have a joint service at 10 o'clock. We won't have 9 o'clock and then 10.30. We'll have 10 o'clock. And it'll combine uh, elements of both the 9 o'clock services and the 10.30 services. It's just two weeks, so I hope you'll bear with it and uh, really be as positive as we can about it. And following the services on these two weeks we'll have a shared lunch and this lunch will be provided but we can give towards the cost of it. And at these lunches, home groups will sit together and those of us who are not yet in a home group will be invited to join one, either temporarily, just between May and July, or else permanently, if that's what you'd like. And at these lunches, we'll make it clear where the home groups meet and when so that will help you make your decision about which one to join, so that you're not just making the decision on which group looks the nicest looking. But I want every member of church to be a part of this evaluation process. I can do what I can to make these lunches happen. The home group leaders can make, this, uh, make these things happen. The coordinators of home groups can make them happen. But we can only do so much each of us needs to take responsibility for ensuring that we are in a home group to take part in this evaluation process as a community. And I'm also praying that we'll have a couple of new leaders come forward for a new daytime home group to help those who can't or don't want to go out in the evenings. Now, during and after the lunches, we'll begin to discuss questions, as I say, on the way and feedback as groups. And in the weeks that follow, those two weeks when we have lunch together, home groups will revert back to their normal pattern and the people who've joined them for the first time will continue with them along those. Sermons will start things off each week and then the preachers are putting together at the moment a booklet that will form the basis of the meetings each week. And the key issues that get discussed will form the feedback that will go to Standing Committee and PCC, which will help us to explore our strengths and weaknesses as a church, how God wants us to develop and improve things, and even some of the things that God wants us to remove from our church life. I'm praying that this process will help us to build strong foundations for the future. Something that we can engage in together. But this will only happen... By exploring these questions on the way. The burning issues that we have as a church community. Exploring these questions on the way, like disciples of Jesus do. So, back to the Bible passage then. Jesus and his disciples are engaged with questions on the way. And Jesus begins with the easier, more objective question when he starts to grill his friends about a burning issue. Look at verse 27. What do other people think? Who do people say I am? Now the disciples, they can answer this one. Easy, they think. We've got this sussed. And so they give their answer. Well, people think, Jesus, that you're a great prophet from the same stable as Elijah or John the Baptist. But by and large, they know you only partially. What they know about you, Jesus, is limited. Of course, they're right to some extent. You are a prophet. You speak the word of God to the people of God and you call them to respond. But this is only part of the picture. You're not just a spokesman for God. There's much more to you than that. Good answer. It seems to sum up the situation pretty well. And so Jesus moves on to the next level. The more difficult question what do you think? Who do you say I am? And it's Peter who emerges as a spokesperson for the group of disciples. They've been sharing together the amazing experience of Jesus' words and his actions, his teaching and his miracles. They've no doubt um, sparked off discussion You you couldn't help it, could you? If you saw one of Jesus' miracles, it would be the topic of conversation for days afterwards. And it must have been the case for the disciples. So it's unlikely that what Peter says here is a brand new idea spoken simply on the spur of the moment. But Mark does make it clear that it's the first time that this truth has been faced fully. And it falls to Peter to openly say it. You are the Christ. Now, realising and articulating the truth that Jesus is the Christ, that he's so much more than a prophet, that he does greater things than simply speaking the word of God to the people of God, opens a door to new things for the disciples. A fresh perspective, new understanding. It takes them to a whole new level. It's like one of the video games that Ryan plays with on the Nintendo Wii. When he gets a certain level of points, then then it opens up new adventures for him in in these video games. Things he's never seen before. Parts of the game he's never been to before. Or it's like when we drive and you reach higher speeds by changing gear. Or doing the high jump and you move on to a higher level once you've cleared the bar at all the lower levels. It's the same here. These four short words, you are the Christ. Meaning that you're the Messiah, the one who people have said for centuries will come and save the world. They open up a whole new world for Jesus' friends. Living as a true disciple of Jesus rests on this important, this crucial realisation. It's a key, in fact, for the door into a whole new world. We can live with a partial understanding of who Jesus is, an incomplete picture, an unfinished story. But when we do, we miss out on the life-changing difference that Jesus the Christ can make to our lives. We pass up on the opportunity to accept the saving love of God given through Jesus the Christ. We say no to the chance to be a servant of the greatest servant of all time. I remember the first time I publicly declared that Jesus is the Christ, the one who came to save me. I was nine years old, and I can remember it as if it was yesterday. It's the the most vivid memory I've got. The moment it happened seemed to be the very same moment that a whole new world opened up for me. A world in which I was bowled over by the sense of how much God loved me but also dauntingly aware of how I needed to follow Jesus from that moment on. I felt the lightness and the joy of God's love and the heaviness of what commitment to Jesus would mean. And I felt those things all at the same time. Perhaps many of you here have had a similar experience and felt just that. The lightness and the joy of God's love mixed with the heaviness of what commitment to Jesus means. The challenge, after times like these, is to carry on living and responding to the fact that you now know the full reality of who Jesus is. It's easy to forget, let it lose its impact, it becomes a familiar, ever-present truth in our lives, but we stop letting it open up new horizons to us. Let's not be a people like this. Let's be a church that squarely faces up to the fact that Jesus is the Christ for the first time or again and again and again and allow that to continue to open up new adventures for us to live for God both as individuals and collectively as a church. By declaring that Jesus is the Christ, we can expect new doors of opportunity and challenge to open up for us just as it did for the disciples back then. You see, immediately after Peter's words of declaration, Jesus began to teach them about things on a whole new level. You'll see from verse 31 that Jesus began unpacking in more detail of what he'd come to do and how we're to serve him and follow him as his friends. Jesus came not to be a Messiah who would mount a military campaign to defeat his human enemies, but as one who would die to save other people. And it's not only Jesus who must face up to the cross. All his followers have to as well. And that includes you and me. Jesus made it perfectly clear that all who follow him follow in the way of the cross, the road of sacrifice, of counting others greater than, of, than yourself, of going without for the benefit of other people, of facing up to persecution, struggles and ridicule, of humility and servanthood. The shadow of the cross fell on the road to Jerusalem in front of Jesus. And that same shadow falls on the road in front of you and me. But as this cross-like shadow falls on our path, what should our response be? What will help us as we look to follow Jesus and walk in his footsteps? Well, the key is found in verses 35 and 36. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? These words contain the challenge of Jesus to be prepared to gain and lose the right things. Jesus' words make it clear to his disciples today, just as back then, that to cling possessively to physical things of this world, life, health, cars, jobs, hobbies, houses, bank accounts, relationships, all over and above our love for God, well then, of course, we reject life-fulfilling faith in Jesus, the Christ. Or put another way, we say, no thank you, to life in all its fullness. But if we're prepared to hold the physical things of this world lightly, or even to let go completely, then we have the promise that our life of faith, our spiritual life, will flourish. It's as easy and as difficult (laughs) as that. And so another key question that Jesus is asking each of us on the way is this. And it's the question on which life hinges. Which one is more worth preserving? Physical life or spiritual life? So there we have it. Jesus wants to ask us questions on the way. Questions that will help us grapple with the burning issues we're facing. Are we open to this happening? Because if we are, we can be certain that two of the questions Jesus will ask us are these. Who do you say I am? And if you say I am the Christ, then are you prepared to gain and to lose the right things? My prayer is that individually and as a whole church, we will reaffirm our belief in Jesus the Christ and we'll begin to do that this morning in the one who saves and follow him wholeheartedly on the way of the cross, the road where that shadow falls, the road of sacrifice, service and humility. Because if we do, this road will certainly lead us into new and exciting but incredibly challenging opportunities in Baston Hill and beyond. I hope you're with me on this. Amen.